Exodus chapter 13. Feels like we've been waiting for this moment for some time. But as you turn to Exodus chapter 13, liberation from Egypt has finally come for the Israelites. And as we will read and hear, it will come in the most dramatic fashion. Through ten plagues, the Lord has progressively revealed his glory and power. Through ten plagues, the false gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, have been found wanting and have therefore been judged. The first steps out of the slavery of the past and into the freedom of a new future are about to begin. It is the dawn of a new day for Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites. But as we are about to hear, the story is far from over. From Exodus chapter 13, starting with verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We actually will continue into 14, but we'll go through the story together. Up until now, just even at the end of 13, we see a shift because up until now, Moses has been the leader. He's represented the Lord before all the people, before Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, everyone. But as the children of Abraham, the descendants of Joseph, the Israelites pack their bags on the backs of donkeys, and begin to head out of Egypt. It's worth noting here that Yahweh takes point. Twice we are told that it is the Lord, not Moses, who leads the people. The God who has called his people out of Egypt goes before them. The Lord guides his people into their future. Now typically when we think about how God guides us, our default mode is frankly individualistic. The Lord leads me in response to my questions, in reply to what I ask. God, tell me, please, whether I should do this or that. Lord, reveal your will whether I should go here or there. But here in Exodus, subtly, God's guidance in our lives is framed in terms of a much larger perspective. The Lord leads us in the direction that will accomplish his salvation, not only for us, but for the whole world. That is exactly why at the end of 13, a brief mention is made of the fact that along with all their other stuff, the Israelites packed up Joseph's bones and didn't leave them behind in Egypt. Egypt was not supposed to be Joseph's home. He knew that. Just as Egypt was never intended to be the final destination of any of his descendants, Egypt was a detour on the way to the fulfillment of a greater promise that the Lord had made long ago to Abraham. And if we remember, the scope of that promise went well beyond one family. 
The anticipation of a final resting place with the Lord was a covenant made for the sake of all the nations. God guides us, beloved, along the path that not only saves us, but also brings salvation to others. Our journey of faith, we see right at the outset, is not our own. It is not just about us. It is also about those who will be added along the way. The exact route taken by the Israelites further underscores that God is in the driver's seat and that the direction we are taken is not always what we might expect or even have guessed. Moses, if you heard, is given specific instructions, specific directions to take the long way, the indirect route towards the promised land. To put this in perspective for us, I just have just how indirect this route is, if Huntington Beach is Egypt and San Diego is the land of Canaan, most of us would hop on the 405, which turns into the 5 South, all the way straight to San Diego. The same kind of route was possible and easier, in fact, between Egypt and Canaan. But rather than take the main highway, the Lord chooses to lead the Israelites northeast out into the desert to San Diego by way of Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> now, besides inferring that God clearly doesn't believe in a GPS, can you imagine that journey? Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Besides that, the text specifically tells us that while this route isn't the quickest or the easiest, it's the way that's best suited to what God's people need. We're going to see this for quite some time as we continue on in Exodus, but it begins here. The lesson begins here. Being free isn't the same thing as living free. And Yahweh knows that the Israelites need more time, more seasoning to get used to their new state of existence. And it doesn't take long for this decision to be vindicated. So Moses and the people find themselves hauling the relics of their life in Egypt inexplicably toward the water. Now, just to get this out of the way, because I know some of you have been waiting for me to say something about this, and once again, I'm probably going to frustrate you in how little I'm going to say, but scholars continue to debate which body of water that the Israelites went towards. If this is your thing, you know that some people believe that they went right through the Red Sea. Others maintain that there's a mistranslation of this word, and they went through the more northern tributaries of the Red Sea that were filled with reeds, hence the oft-used translation, the Reed Sea. Lots of ink has been spilled about this. No one knows for sure. I'm not going to take a, a stake in this fight because what we do know for sure, what matters, what's important, what the scriptures give us is that the whole band of Israelites did not go over land toward Canaan. Amen? Oh, that wasn't convincing at all. <laughs> I could see some of you are going to want to talk about this point a little bit later. The Israelites didn't go over land. They went instead towards a large body of water. Now, amen. Thank you, Geneva. I'll take it. Now, meanwhile, and this is what we would have continued to hear if we read through chapter 14. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, despite the tragic loss of so many of Egypt's firstborn sons, we find that Pharaoh hasn't given up trying to win his battle against God. As he scans the horizon of his crumbling empire, his heart is still not completely broken. It carries, unfortunately, the potential for a little more hardening. Pharaoh suddenly realizes that he has released the backbone of the Egyptian economy. 
Brick by brick, the nation of Egypt rose to power on the back of Israelite slaves. But now there is no one to make bricks, let alone stack them. Well, at least not for free. As the imperative of economic recovery begins to overwhelm him, Pharaoh devises a rather uninspired answer to his labor shortage. A military solution. Pharaoh puts the fate of his country into the hands of his soldiers. Now that sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? He gathers the full force of his army. Horses and chariots were told and soldiers and sets out in hot pursuit of the recently departed Israelites. Pharaoh sends his best forces to head off the Israelites and hem them in by the sea. And it doesn't take long before Pharaoh and the Israelites are Pharaoh and the Egyptian army head off Moses, Aaron and the Israelites and suddenly we find in chapter 14 that hope turns into doubt as the Israelites find themselves caught between the devil of Pharaoh's army and the deep blue of the Red Sea. White-knuckled with their backs against the wall, the people cry out to God as they unload their doubts on Moses. After all they've been through, after all they've witnessed, they doubt everything. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Caught between a rock and a hard place, the Israelites couldn't see a way out. And there are some of us here this morning that find ourselves in the very same place. We may not be out in the desert with a literal army on one side and a massive body of water on the other, but it sure feels like it. We're feeling the squeeze, not knowing which way to go unable to find a way through the other, to the other side. We're in that place, some of us, where we can't see a way out. I don't know how I'm going to survive when I lose my job. I used my house for collateral to start up a new business, to pay off my debts, and now my business has failed. They're calling my loan, and I'm about to lose my house, and I don't know how I'm going to survive. Most of us have been here. And today, even if you're not there, I want to assure you that you are surrounded this morning by some people who are. And beyond here, when you're out in this world, in this economy of our own, in these changing times, we look into the faces across the pews. We look into faces at gas pumps and grocery stores, in the neighborhoods and in our office. And we see people who have the same look in their eye, the same fear in their hearts as the Israelites do here. Being stuck in the middle is an anxious place. And most of us have been there at some point in our lives. And when we are there, like the Israelites, our fear can become so great. Our motivation to avoid pain becomes so intense that like them, we will rewrite history didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Do you remember them saying that? And then, if that were not bad enough, they say it. Centuries of slavery, centuries of abuse, of knowing of no other way make it all too easy in this moment of crisis for them to say and believe it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Wow. Moses doesn't bat an eye. 
Moses doesn't bat an eye. In this climactic game of chicken with Pharaoh, Moses keeps his eye on the God who has led him this far. He answers the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord though that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Beloved, in moments of crisis, faith is first born out of our doubts. And here, here in such a beautiful way, we see Moses come full circle, don't we? Moses had his doubts, you remember? Moses was convinced that the road before him, the one that led back to Egypt, was a dead end. Do we remember? But as God walked with Moses through those doubts, Moses learned that there was a way through to the other side. Moses learned, he lived one of the foundational truths of the Bible. We walk by faith, not by sight. Moses does not yet know what the Lord's going to do. Moses cannot see it, but Moses believes that Yahweh will make a way. This guy who was convinced that the Lord had picked the wrong man for the job in Egypt, the one whose doubts were so great that he came up with every excuse in the book for not following the Lord's leading, stands now before his brothers and sisters and tells them, do not fear. He tells them to stand firm. When your back is against the wall, you realize what you really believe and where you really put your trust. Moses calls the Israelites, and by extension, Moses calls us to stop looking at what is in front of us and instead to focus on who is in front of us, on who goes before us. The Israelites were so fixated on what was coming they were so concerned about what they had to do in response that they turned their eyes away from the Lord who was with them. They could no longer see the pillar of cloud or of fire that was right in front of them, holding back death and opening up a path to salvation. And beloved, how many of us can relate to this? How many of us here today are so overwhelmed by what we are facing? How many of us are so worried about what we might have to do that like the Israelites, we have lost sight of the God who goes before us, the God who delivers. How many of us feel trapped in a joyless, hopeless journey, this life as we call it in the fast lane? The speed and pace, the intensity of life is so crazy that we feel like we're holding on for dear life. We believe that we will be saved. We talk about going to heaven, but that's all future tense. In the meantime, we're striving, we're fighting, we're battling for survival. For us, the road of salvation feels a lot like this scene for the Israelites, and we're just as white-knuckled, just as afraid, just as nearsighted. Gladys Alward was a missionary to China more than 50 years ago when she was forced to flee when the Japanese invaded Yang Chen. But she couldn't leave her work behind. You see, with one assistant, she led more than 100 orphans over the mountains towards free China. In their book, The Hidden Price of Greatness, Ray Beeson and Rendella Mack Hunsinger tell what happened. During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yang Chen, she grappled with despair as never before. 
After passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. A 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of their much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I am not Moses, Gladys cried in desperation from the mouth of babes. Of course you aren't, said this 13-year-old girl, but Jehovah is still God. When Gladys and the orphans made it through, they reinforced what Moses tried to teach the people here, what Moses learned in his own life. No matter how inadequate we feel, no matter how boxed in things look, God is still God. He is Emmanuel, and he is still with us. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Moses reminds the people of the God who has brought them this far. Moses rallies his companions to remember the grace that broke their chains and saved them from a life of slavery. Out in the wilderness, facing the enemy, backed up against the waters, the Israelites didn't know how they were going to get out of that fix. But Moses tells them to look up and see the pillar of fire and smoke and to know that God was with them. Beloved, sometimes that's all we can be sure of. Sometimes that's all we know too. I don't know how God is going to help me out of this fix, but I know that God is with me. Sometimes that's all we have. Sometimes all we have is knowing we can't do anything to save ourselves. All we can do is receive the gift of grace. All we can do is receive the same gospel that saved us the first time. Many of us speak about making a decision for Christ, but we make that same decision for Christ every day of our lives. We face the same reality that nothing we do can save us, and we face the same promise that in the midst of that shocking truth is a greater truth that God is with us, that God will never leave us or forsake us. This is where the gift of grace begins. But it does not end here. If you continued in chapter 14, if we looked at that again this morning, something startling happens. Moses seems to have given a good word to the people. And yet, after Moses speaks, God speaks. God responds to the people with these words. Why do you cry out to me? I love that. What is your problem? But it gets better. No sooner has Moses uttered the words, stand firm. Then we hear the Lord say to Moses, tell the Israelites to move on. Just in case you're missing the punchline, let me repeat this. Moses tells the people to stand still, and without missing a beat, the Lord overrides Moses and tells him to get the people to walk forward. We can't, can we imagine how that must have surprised Moses? Move on? Do you mean that metaphorically? Because uh, where exactly are we supposed to go? The Egyptian army is breathing down our necks from the rear, and there's nothing but water in front of us. There's nowhere to move on to. The encouraging thing about this passage for me is that as far as Moses has come, he still has much more to learn when it comes to this God. That's good news because we're all in the same boat. 
We all understand that the more that we learn about this God who delivers, the more we realize how much we don't know. The Lord's way of saving his people was beyond the imagination of Moses. Moses. Moses imagined that Yahweh could and would do it. That's why he told the people to stand still. But the Lord's plan of salvation, the scope of his intentions, were greater than what Moses could imagine. Moses can't see it. But the Lord just keeps on giving instructions anyway. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide the waters and march through on dry ground. Moses had it half right. The gift of grace begins with knowing that the Lord is with you. But living out of that grace, beloved, means walking by faith. Taking the initial and repeated steps of following this God. There's a midrash told about this story, and if you're not familiar with what a midrash is, in the Jewish tradition, midrashes are stories about the stories in the Bible. They're not intended, they're not presumed to be inspired, but they're ways on, in, in, as the story is internalized by the community, of reflecting on the gaps, the things that aren't said, the things that aren't explained. And they're simply intended as to try to get one to, to go deeper into the actual story, to reflect upon it. And there's a midrash told um, about this story <laughs> that's uh, quite good, that um, involves... The idea that the waters did not part with one sweep of Moses' hand, but rather that the waters began to part once the people started wading in. Water in front of them, army behind, God's invitation to move into their future, and when they tied up their robes and took off their sandals and waded hip deep into the water of their fears, it was then that the waves picked up the waters receded, and the path emerged. Either way you choose to look at it, the Israelites had to walk into the water. Walking by faith and not by sight still necessitates taking some steps. We don't remain motionless. We don't stand still when grace opens up a way in our lives. We move forward. We press on. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. They asked God to act on their behalf. Their surprise was not that the Lord responded. Get this. Their surprise was not that God responded. They prayed because they expected, even in the midst of their self-confessed doubts, that the Lord would respond. Their surprise was that the Lord's answer to their prayer involved their participation. Can you relate? My brothers and sisters, we desire grace. I don't know anybody who doesn't like the idea of grace. We all desire it. I don't know anybody who doesn't like to celebrate grace. We all celebrate it. We praise God for the grace that we have been given. But the question is, do we live by this grace? Walking by faith is walking by grace. Steps are involved. We follow where God leads. Beloved, if we never move our feet, if all we do is move our lips, then our relationship with this God is just about boosting our confidence, stroking our ego, but not about having our lives transformed. Grace leads to action. Faith has to be lived. Otherwise, all of this, all of what we're doing here this morning, if we are not about taking steps, if we are not about following this God, all of this just becomes playing religion. Our faith becomes a liturgical lottery ticket where we offer up to God our wish list and just hope that maybe this time our number will come up. Can you relate, my brothers and sisters? 
I was in an African-American church, I'd be getting some amens right now. <laughs> I think of that because I, I think of that because we all know this is a foundational story to our African brothers, African-American brothers and sisters. They get this. They lived it. And despite what we think, we're living it too. Beloved, the Lord can open up a way in front of us, but we have to step into the water. In the hardest moments of our lives, and some of you may be living in them right now, there are decisions that need to be made. Decisions about whether or not we will lift our feet and take the next step, even though we have no idea what's ahead. As fear and uncertainty threaten to overtake us, we remember and we see that God is with us and we move on, we move forward, we walk by faith. The letter to the Hebrews that comes much, much later in our Bible says that this is the essence of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. We trust in God to guide us. We live into and out of the grace that we have been given. We receive and we believe with our feet. If you know the rest of this story, it looks as though Pharaoh has Israel surrounded and trapped. But the Lord, interestingly, and it's a great picture, is on both sides of Israel, protecting them from behind and making a way in front. The people are enveloped, picture that, by the saving presence of the Lord, from behind and from the front. As Moses stretches out his hand over the waters, this God who delivers drives back the waves and, and, and with a strong east wind, the Israelites begin to walk. The Israelites step into and receive the Lord's salvation. As the Israelites go through the waters on dry ground, a hard-hearted Pharaoh orders his troops to go in after them. Ah, but the ground feels different for the Egyptian army. The path that is a way of salvation for the people of Israel is also the same road to ruin. The judgment of God upon Pharaoh and his forces. The Lord throws the Egyptians into massive confusion. The picture that we're given in Exodus 14 is literally the wheels start coming off. Pharaoh's soldiers realize the truth of the matter and they cry out, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They realize they're in over their heads, but it's too late. And the Lord gives the command to Moses to stretch out his hand once more and the walls of water, everything that the Egyptians once believed comes crashing down upon them. A sobering picture of the double edge of grace and judgment with this God, that the same road of salvation can be the same path to our destruction. And it's all about our orientation. It's all about whether we are taking the steps to follow this God. But the irony, the beautiful irony, is that Pharaoh's trap turns out to be Israel's salvation. Israel's salvation becomes Egypt's final judgment. This is the kind of God we worship, beloved, the one who can turn death on its head, who can transform dead ends into new beginnings. Beloved, salvation from death and victory over evil occur at the same place. Do we see that? Salvation from death and victory from evil occur at the same place. This is true out in the wilderness, and it is so true on the cross. I don't know where you are today. I sense it, but I don't know. 
But I do know that we're the place that we all find ourselves at some point in our lives. You may not be here today, but you might be tomorrow. You might be in that place where the enemy's on one side and chaos is on the other. Be in that place where it seems like there's no way out. You might find yourself on your knees with the Bible in your hand and you feel like despite everything you cry out, everything you're doing, you're trapped. You're trapped as all the choices that are before you range from bad to worse. If you're in that place, when you get to that place, listen to Moses. Be still. Be still. Your efforts won't save you. Rest in the Christ who has gathered you into himself, who took the, your place in the middle, who took your place in mine in that space between the devil and the deep blue sea as he was nailed to a cross without a way out, with only death before him. Beloved, we have not been delivered from an Egyptian army. We have been delivered from something far more deadly, the curse of sin and the shadow of the grave. The story of the resurrection of Jesus, which we are on the verge of beginning to anticipate and celebrate, is the story of God parting the waters for us once and for all. This God who has gone through the waters for us, lived for us, makes a way through death and brings us out the other side into a new life and into an eternal hope. We sit here today, we come, we remember we tell this story. We look ahead to the, the grand fulfillment of this story on Calvary because we recognize, we believe that God has called us out of our old existence of slavery to sin and into a new freedom. But it's a freedom that begins when we look up and realize that he is with us. When we tell each other, the Lord is with us. When together, arm in arm, we marvel as the waters before us part and we discover together that we are not alone. This God who delivers is our redeemer, our light and our guide into the future, a future shaped by grace and not by fear. We gather together to remind ourselves, to tell each other that God is with us, but we gather together because we know, we hear the Lord speaking Above the voice of Moses that tells us to stand still, we know that we have to move on. We have to go forward. We know that in order to live into that glorious future, we must live out of the grace that we have been given. Our calling, beloved, is to live into the light of the implications of belonging to such a gracious God. To take the next step through the fear and to move into the promise of everything our lives, our world can be. How this is intersected with the good and beautiful life is so fabulous. If you haven't read that book, I encourage you to read it. But as Pastor Joe alluded to, the latest chapter that we're looking at in that study is that it's when you understand the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is among us. The kingdom of God is at work here. The world is not a scary place. And too many of us, and I'm talking about believers in Christ, characterize the world as being an unsafe, scary place. But if you are not seeing the world through God's eyes, if you are not seeing the kingdom, if you don't know that this kingdom cannot be overtaken, nothing will bring this kingdom down, then you cannot see 
that in fact the world is the opposite. It is safe. It is good. Because God is with us. Because Aslan is on the move. Beloved, God is before us. God is behind us. God is making a way. We're called to look, to see, and by faith to take the first step to wade into the water and to believe with our feet. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.